Imagine we're all decided we we'll all go to the, the theatre together, maybe to go see a show. You know, go in through the we've got our tickets, somebody's kindly given us to them for free. We've got our popcorn or maybe our, our sweets smuggled in. We're not gonna pay three pounds for a bag of smarties, sure we're not or something. We've smuggled them in, we're sitting in our seats, we're we're all chatting away, the lights are on, but as soon as those lights go off, what happens? There's silence, isn't there? The, the, the chatter dims away down and the spotlight comes onto the stage and where are all our eyes fixed? In the light, aren't they? They're all fixed in the light. What's going to happen for the next hour and a half if you don't fall asleep is that they will present the play upon the stage under the lights. Maybe there will be some character run through. But generally it's all going to be in the lights. If they decided to turn all the lights off. It would be pointless wouldn't it? We would see nothing that was going on. And here as we turn to Isaiah chapter 2. And please follow along with me. Isaiah is calling the people to look into the light. And in fact to live in this light. And I'm sure you'll be able to pick up a couple of words that were repeated about you know, pride and humility really throughout the passage we read. So what's Isaiah 2 about? Well it's asking that the humble walk in God's light because they know that he will be exalted. If we want to be truly followers of Jesus, we want to reach eternal life. What is that we must do? We must trust in Jesus. What does it mean as we live life that we are humble? We're not proud, but we walk under that spotlight. The light of God and his words. Why? Because we know one day it's not us who's going to be lifted up. It's going to be Jesus. And we are to live in that way. See, as Isaiah begins, the first five verses that we sang, they begin off quite hopeful, don't they? You know, talking about the house of the Lord, come, all nations are going to say, let's come. But then it soon turns quickly to judgment again. And this is going to be the constant pattern, this being the judgment and the hope. He talks about these last days. Now, for Israel, the imminent last days is whenever they're going to be taken in exile. But we know there is a last day coming as Christ will return. That we are in these final stages of God's redeeming plan for the world. So we have to walk in his ways. We know that he will be exalted. So the things of t- in today's world, they're put in perspective, aren't they? Jesus is coming back. And we are simply just a dot in history. If we're even a full dot in history, aren't we? Verse 21 gives us, is it, right, verse 20, you literally know the, all these things are going to pass away. The silver and gold, it's going to go to the moles. There's greater treasure that's going to be with us. And we follow Jesus because one day he will be exalted. Everything else is full of false hope. And the thing about this, but the world uses self-advancement as lifting ourselves up, don't we? Look what we've achieved in our generation compared to the generation before what the space space is a little bit about travel, technology we say look at how great all this is we're lifting ourselves up but for us we say look at how great and holy our God is this is how Isaiah begins this chapter that God's kingdom will be exalted a day will come it shall come to pass in the latter days a day that God has marked out in history that the Lord will be lifted up above all things There's a day that everybody will know it. Christians believe it. 
that one day all will know. Since Paul in Philippians, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They'll not all be saved by Jesus. They'll know that he is the one that's exalted and Lord. And for Jerusalem, they will be humbled. They will be taken away. But they will know that the Lord lives as they're taken away too. And here Isaiah takes the picture of, of Zion, the, the, that the Lord will be lifted up on the highest mountaintop. In verse, is it verse 2? The house of the Lord shall be established on the highest mountains. And what happens to the nations? The nations, in the end of verse 2, shall flow into it. Nations will be flowing, streaming into the temple. And this is not a natural thing, isn't it? Flow, Niagara Falls flows down, doesn't it? But here there is just a stream after stream of an uphill people just flowing up to, her, flowing up to, to God's presence. It's impossible. It's a miracle, isn't it? Even in the words that are used, because it's all of God. That God works in the hearts of his people by his spirit, and he will bring them flowing in. For it's the blessing of God's rule, isn't it? It's not just Israel flowing in here, is it? Their ears are perking up. You mean to tell me those guys from Syria are going to be invited in? You can imagine the picture. We're in this picture, aren't we? We are part of this crowd that is going to be gathered in, nation upon nation. And we know this is only in, in part so far, isn't it? Other nationalities, individuals come to know uh, the, the Lord God in the Old Testament like Rahab. And Acts 2 at Pentecost, there other nationalities come to know and trust Jesus. But it ultimately is pointing to this picture in Revelation where all nations will be gathered in. The nations will flow in and it will be attractive to this world. As God's people are converted to be with him and they are a, a, a God's spirit living within them. They are his representatives. And that is an attraction for the world. Because those God's kingdom will be exalted. As the nations flow in, there will also be peace in verse 4. What was once used to kill is going to use to sustain life. Swords into plowshares, spears into hooks. Outside of the United Nations in New York, there's a, a place called Isaiah's Wall, and this is a statue outside of it. Now, there's a wee bit of irony to it. It was donated by the Soviet Union in '59, just before the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the point was supposed to be a, a peaceful gesture, and it has these words from Isaiah 2, verse 4. Imprinted around it, then they could do much. They, they could do learn much about heeding the words of the Bible at the minute, couldn't they? But here in, in verse four, Isaiah and God envisages a day of peace, a day whenever Christ will come back to to, to reign. There'll be no temptation of war. There's going to be no need to to learn about war. There's going to be no broken families without a father or a husband because of war, because God is this bringer of peace. And it's part of what Jesus has come to do. Restoring us sinners to have peace with God, yes. But those who are once enemies, different nationalities, will have peace. Because they are ruled by the Prince of Peace. And there will only be peace for one reason, and that's because the Lord is exalted. So verses 11 and 17, it concludes a, a little bit of what's going on wrong in Jerusalem. Well, as you see, at the very end of verses 11 and 17, the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. 
See, in the, the culture in which Isaiah writes, and it really carries right through to the, the New Testament as well, where all the nations and all the peoples put their gods were on top of a hill. Okay, so that's the temple is built on the top of Mount Zion. If you go around different cities and at the time, the, the temple would have been built on top of a hill. So if you think in the New Testament, places like Athens or cities like that, the, the, the temple is built on top of a hill. Why? Well, there's a sense in which all these different people had their different gods. They wanted to place their god in the height. And the higher the height, the better. Because obviously, the taller the hill that their, your god was on, the closer they were to heaven and the more powerful that they were. So Zion, comparing to the, the other mountains around in the nation there, it's in other places, really small. But one day it's going to be exalted. It's going to be the highest mountain. What's it saying is Isaiah saying that everybody will know this is God. Not any of these other silly gods, these false gods. For none of these gods actually live in the mountains except the one true God. And that's why it will be established as the highest. For he will dwell there. And he will no longer be a, a small God for a small nation. But he will all be seen to be the living God for every nation. And this is what Isaiah sees in verse 2. That it will be established chief among the mountains. It's going to be raised above the hills. It's going to be in this day. Peace will be brought because of the victory of Jesus. And but now as in Jerusalem as uh, but now in Jerusalem as they have all these hills also around Jerusalem with all these different idols that they spotted about on top of these different hills. There might be a hill for, for Baal or Molech or all these different kinds of gods all around Jerusalem. And as we live in our world today, we live in a world where there's lots of hilltops, don't we? Lots of, lots of idols. Lots of hilltops where people worship other things. The mountaintops of, of sex, identity. And people say, well, this is the most important thing for all of us. Money. They, they chase it and long for it and look for it. Or power or, or materials and, and trying to grab as much as we can for advancement perhaps as well. And there's all these hilltops all around us in this world. And that is where the people are flowing to, isn't it? All these hilltops. Full of false promises and false hopes. But it's only, in verse 3, it's only out of Zion. It's only out of, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord. It's only out of the Lord that there's any hope of peace. For that is where he is going to be exalted. You know, Jesus, as he talks about the cross in John 3, which we read earlier, is using these same words about being raised up. It's echoing Moses, but it's echoing all this language in the Old Testament about a time coming where God will raise himself up for all to see. See, God's kingdom exalted is a word of hope. It's a word of encouragement for the people, although they are small in number, as the nations gather together to keep going, to keep praying, to keep walking with the Lord. Forget about all the other hilltops. I look to Calvary's hill. For that is where the one true God brings us peace. 
One day all will see it. It's in the future. It's partly fulfilled already. When we will see streams of people heading up towards God's presence. And as Isaiah looks out and sees this picture, he sees me and you walking up there too. God's kingdom will be exalted. A kingdom of all nations. A kingdom that will be full of peace. But for now, in Jerusalem, what are the people doing? Well, they're not flowing up the Zion with worship hearts, are they? They're going up all these other hills. And Isaiah tells us that the people are full of phony. Full of phony. Verses 6 and onwards. We're at now. Isaiah says, look, this is a wonderful thing that's going to happen. But now back to reality. This is what the world looks like as we live in it in, in Jerusalem, as we live in it today. Where people's minds are full of phony, full, so full of really less important matters. My mum used to say to me, really throughout all my studies, David, if you knew much about football or rugby, or you took as much care in your preparation for rugby as your schoolwork would be going places. What was more important? It wasn't the football or the rugby. And here we have the same problem in our world, don't we? People's minds are full of meaningful matters than what's eternal. We can remember and explain minute detail and intricate plot lines from plays or books that we've read or movies that we've watched, but some of us are unable to give an overview of God's word. We're unable to, to, to speak clearly about God's plan of salvation because we fill ourselves with phony. Chapter 1, verse 21, Isaiah reminds Israel that you were once full of justice, but that is no longer the case. There are people here constantly think they are something, that they are the part, but the reality is they're full of nonsense. They are trusting in the wrong things. Isaiah says you have abandoned your people, you have abandoned your God. God's people have not been true to the life and not living in the light, and God has abandoned them because they're no different to anybody else. There's no heart in their religion. The people are full of phony because they have a false religion. Verses 6 and 8. As Isaiah said, they're full of things from the east. Fortune tellers. Horoscopes. We quizzes that tell us well, what we're going to be like in five years time. Or what our name means. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. It's unequal marriage. We talk about today. Unequally yoked. Their land, verse 8, their, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. For many of us bow down to our own homes. Say, look what I've built. The people here are worshipping other gods. We see it constantly in Kings and Chronicles. And it's not just a little dabble by a few people on the periphery of society, but it's everybody. It's idol worship. The word used for idol really sums it all up. Worthless. They are worshipping something that is worthless. Sums up the spiritual blindness of the nation. That they don't see the folly of worshipping something that they have even made. They are full of what God is not. And this has fully integrated into the life of their society, hasn't it? It's not just a few, but this is the core religion. Anything but God. 
It's infiltrated them and over time, slowly and slowly taking ground, like grass encroaching on a road. You don't notice it if it's there six inches or maybe a foot. But if it never gets touched, it soon become not harmless but harmful. And what seemed initially harmless for a few people to dabble in now seems normal to everybody. And they've been filled, been filled with phony rather than the words. They've allowed the world to mould them like clay. We are in danger of that too, aren't we? And we've seen this firsthand probably in some of us in two or three generations, haven't we? A false religion that has gripped us, infiltrated over time, slowly taking ground, and then it's normal. Because we've not walked in the light. They have false religion. And I think the next one's false money, as it were, false wealth. Verse 7, they have no end to the treasures on their shelves. Their mantelpieces are full of trophies and the most ornate ornaments you could ever imagine. You know, wedgewood everywhere. They are filling up on all of that stuff. They've accrued a significant amount of material wealth. They are living in this pursuit of more. Their land is filled. Their stables are filled with horses. They have ample farmland. They have ample animals. But it's of no use to them. Because by verse 10, they're going to have to cower and hide. They seem rich. They feel rich. But they're rich in the wrong stuff. They need to be rich in God. And they're not. And then they also have a false power as well. I think in in verse 7, this idea of horses and chariots. In verse 15, it talks about a tower and a wall of ships. An idea of building security for themselves. Do you remember Assyria's lingering about on the outside? They think with all these practical means that they will be protected because they trust in themselves rather than the Lord. And they fill themselves up with false power, thinking we don't need to worry about anybody else, just ourselves. They fill themselves with false wealth, thinking we've got all the riches in this world, let's not worry about the next. And they have a false religion, thinking, well, I'll just do whatever I feel like and it'll be all right in the end. And they fill themselves with these things. It happens today. Nothing has changed. Nothing is new under the sun. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. Or might we say it today? Well, it's our, our tolerance, isn't it? To be as wide as possible. As long as it doesn't infringe what I think and believe. The constant pursuit of, of finances and of more. The military ability and potential of nations. And Jerusalem, Judah, like us. Apart from the ways of the Lord. They are full of everything except the Holy Spirit. So let's fill ourselves, not with anything other than God. That will leave us empty, but on Christ and his word. When believers stuff their lives full of false ideals and comforts, it's because we're empty within. Let's not be people full of phony, but full of fire for our Lord. The other problem that the people have they're full of the fake stuff but they're also full of pride aren't they people full of pride and this is a word that's that's come up in a few ways and none of us are immune to this are we not 
All of us encounter pride, probably on a daily basis. It can be subtle and devious at times. It can even happen within our faith too, can't it? And you say, well, look, look what I have done. Rather than what God has done through us. In chapter 1, the people are saying, look at all our sacrifices. Forgetting what the sacrifice meant that God had promised to do. And pride echoes throughout all of Scripture. From Adam and Eve thinking they knew more about God. To the people building the Tower of Babel. To Peter saying, I will never deny Jesus. Me? Never. Of course in life as we experience, there's genuine advancements in human life. But it's not the science that we ought to worship. Not the work of individuals or engineering or art or literature or technology. But it is the Lord that we must worship. All those things that I've rattled off, that's what our nation takes pride in, isn't it? We lived that what, two, three years ago. Science is going to help us. Healthcare is going to help us. Here in Jerusalem, there are people full of pride. And what God says they need is to be emptied. To be emptied. Verse 9. So man is humble. Each one brought low. Do not forgive him. Verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. Verse 12. The Lord has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. And verse 17 as well. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. There's an impending judgment. They will go into the rocks. They will hide in the dust. And the exalted will be humbled. I don't mean to use another sports illustration. I've used too many in the last couple of weeks. But you know the, the boxing match. There's the press conference beforehand. and It's just full of nonsense and chat. Sometimes there's one boxer that is incredibly proud. And say well I'm going to knock this boy out in six rounds. I'm definitely going to win. I'm the best fighter that's ever walked this earth. And they build themselves all the way up. And what can you be sure that happens in round one? They end up on their nose in the canvas. And they're down. And this is what God says is going to happen to those people. They say, well, I've got it all sorted. I don't need the Lord's help. Their nose is going to be in the dust. Everything that the world says we are good at, everything that the world exalts itself against God, will be brought down. Nothing is going to rob God of his glory. He will share his glory with nobody. The pride of religion. Of being keeping rules it might be. Or maybe not having any. The pride of money. The pride of power will be brought low. Everything that people have trusted in will be brought down. Why? Because coming is the terror and splendor of the Lord. The terror and splendor. The, the majesty of God. These proud as a peacock people. They'll be humbled. Because of the holiness of God. They were high and lifted up themselves. To be exalted for all the sea. And they'll be like dust on the earth. Picture here is this great earthquake. A great shaking. That the people are running to caves for shelter and safety. But they'll not find it there. They will seek refuge. And at that time their idol. Their God on top of that hilltop. Will be of no help. Their silver and gold that they've accumulated will be of no help as the Babylonians come in. Their power that they thought they had is worthless and hopeless. And God will judge them by using the Babylonians to come. 
Remember as we started this last week, one thing I said was that as we read God's word, Isaiah writes it, God writes it for God's people. And we need to apply God's word to us as well. We can point outside quite easily in this passage, can't we? But what about ourselves? Where is our pride in our hearts? What hills are we looking to in this world to make ourselves feel better or do better? The Lord might well let us travel down that road for a little while, pursuing career, money, whatever it might be. And as your ego fills, as your perceived independence from God grows, he can humble us. Our hearts are full of idols. And as we exalt them, or ourselves, our pride will be humbled. Whenever we say we are God's people, we must expect to be corrected from time to time too. Because God will share his splendor and glory with nobody but himself. And that's what we read throughout, whether it be in verse 10, 19 and 21, God's splendor will be for all to see. And we are right to long for that day where all things will be made new, where there's going to be this final triumph of God. So what do we do? We walk in this light, yes, but we trust in the life giver. See, this ultimately is where our trust is to be placed. We need to trust God, not man. We need to stop trusting man. Verses 6 to 21 is just constantly people relying on created things. And the conclusion is, well, with God's terror and splendor to come, everything that you made is going to be gone, so come, trust God. No longer trusting others to determine lifestyle of God's word. No matter how rich or influential, important or persuasive people might be in our world, we say no and we trust in the life giver. Our words fascinated by leadership or people who stand out from the crowds. But we need to stop trusting in human resources and pleasures. But trust in the God-man Jesus. We need to stop being fascinated by men and women, but be influenced by God. That we fill ourselves with him, because the one man who did breathe his life to come up to life again is the one who is still living. See, as we trust in the life giver, we are to walk in this light. What First John's all about as well, isn't it? To walk in his paths, just like the, this, the, the, the play that we went to at the start. We're to walk in that light, live in that light, that others would see that light as we perform our life on this earth, that people would be able to come and come away and say, well, they were walked in that light. They walked in God's ways. We're not to be content in simply turning up to worship, just to gather information perhaps, but to walk in the light as we put our knowledge and what we hear into practice. For we trust and this life giver, why? Because he, he gives us breath. Verse 22, who gives man breath? Well, it's God. The question is, stop regarding man and whose nostrils is breath. For where does the breath come from? Who give him life? For God breathed into the Adam's nostrils and he gave Adam life. And every atom of oxygen that we take in is given to us by God. So we need to be humble, don't we? We're a drop in the ocean in the history of this world. 
We are a drop in the ocean compared to God's power and his glory. And we are utterly dependent on him. The gift of breath is from a life giver. And Jesus breathed out his last part of his life. So that we would have this life too. The humble walk in God's light because they know he will be exalted. So let us trust in Jesus. For he was lifted up on that hilltop of Calvary, wasn't he? For all to see. And let's confess him as our Lord and Saviour. For he is the one who gives us life. And ultimately one day will lift us up to Zion's hill, his kingdom.